0: When I started feeling like I was overwhelmed and overworked and I just, my brain went automatically to like private pilot school default and it was like hands and feet, I disconnected the autopilot and I just flew it raw. Welcome to Flying BC, a podcast about the people, planes and aviation adventures in British Columbia
1: and Canada with your host, Warwick Patterson. Well, it's been quite a week around the globe, and I hope everyone is staying healthy and safe out there. This is episode two of the Flying BC Podcast, and you can now find the show on almost every platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe. There's a ton of great aviation podcasts out there to enjoy during your self-isolation. I'll mention a few of them at the end of the show. March 7th was the annual Fly It Forward event at Glacier Air in Squamish. Part of the Women of Aviation week, the day saw over 100 women and girls take to the air for their first ride in a small aircraft. And this year there were several female pilots involved. Alexis, Amy, and Madeline are great examples and role models for the young girls who came out to fly. It's always fun seeing the look on people's faces as they climb out of the plane after seeing the world from a different perspective. This was the ninth year that Colette and Glacier Air have hosted the event and it gets a lot of people excited about aviation. Today my guest is Angie Tanton. Angie is someone I've wanted to catch up with for a while because she seems to be leading a really interesting career. She was due back to her job in Saudi Arabia soon, so I wanted to make sure I caught her before she left. So I packed my audio kit and met her at Glacier Air. Our journey through aviation is a great example of the adventures and variety of jobs available to pilots. It's not always just a fast track to the airlines. So here we go. Off to the airport to meet Angie Tanton. So welcome. Hi, thanks. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your aviation story. You've got a pretty cool, cool career already, yeah. with a lot of work in remote places and...
0: Yeah, thanks. I'm, uh, I'm really grateful. I have had <clears throat> a lot of opportunities. So. Um, basically when I was in grade 10 in high school I, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do and uh, they had a career day and there was a flying school that came so I popped by and they handed me a pamphlet and I was like what's this for they said you could be a pilot and I said I could be a pilot <laughs> I really had no idea I had never it had never crossed my mind um, so I went for uh, fan flight and went up with an instructor and got to fly and I was hooked from that moment the way uh, everything looked from the air um, that I could look down on and uh, It looked different every day every moment every second it was changing uh, It was that was exactly what I needed. So from that point on age 16 forward. That was my goal was to fly. Uh, I started when I was 19 at a flight school in Red Deer, Alberta and I did that from 92 to 94, commercial license, moved out to Vancouver, did the float rating, the multi-IFR, I started working at the South Terminal Airport for Oak Bay Marine Group Sport Fishing Company, which kept me around a lot of airplanes and pilots and I would harass everybody constantly I also took a second job of washing the twin otters that were uh, contracted to Harbor Air from Ken Air. And I would go in between fish flights and in the evenings when everybody would be having a beer in the flying beaver bar. I'd be washing washing (laughs) the exhaust tracks off the wings. Uh, So for three summers, I did that. So there's definitely kind of a pay your dues um, sort of mentality I mean you really have to learn the ropes and learn your way around the airplane and not complain and just just work hard and keep begging for a job
1: (laughs) and that was a time in the industry where you did have to slug it out to to get a pilot job
0: yeah definitely I so I did that and my very first job was uh on a twin otter on floats as a co-pilot with 275 hours and I was super thrilled yeah. Um,
1: was that a direct result of your your cleaning and working all those jobs and making connections?
0: Yeah and it, so in the meantime I mean I could name off the chief pilot at 100 companies across Canada from all the resumes and phone calls and that I had sent uh, and it I just unless you can go on a road trip sometimes I think it's difficult or unless you know somebody and so my biggest connection was around Vancouver harassing all the people that uh, would come through um, with airplanes full of our sport fishermen. So I, yeah, it was basically just a result of, uh, every time the chief pilot would come in, I would tell him, my white shirt's all ironed and ready to go, when do you want me to start ground school? (laughs) And they'd just kind of laugh and say, oh, I don't have anything for you. But in the meantime, there was people on the dock that were getting hired as pilots ahead of me. And it was, um, I would say it was super frustrating because, you don't really know why it's not you, but I think ultimately it wasn't me because I might not have been there in that moment in that day when they needed somebody. Right. And when I was, they called. So,
1: so had you done any flying jobs, um, as an actual corporate pilot or a commercial pilot before you got hired on?
0: No, that was my very first job. Wow. Yeah.
1: So straight into a right seat on the otter. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. And I was so, so lucky to fly with so many extremely experienced captains and I, yeah, I feel like uh, for me that was a, an amazing way to learn before kind of setting out on my own. Right. You know, I could learn from their mistakes <laughs> yeah. and also learn to push my boundaries a little bit with them, with their experience level, my boundaries would have been way higher. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: Cool. So where, um, where did it go from there? Right seat in the Twin Otter?
0: Yeah, right seat in the Twin Otter, Um, and I flew all over. I flew in the Queen Charlotte Islands, west coast of Vancouver, then I went to the Maldives, then I went to Burma, then I I flew again back here, like scheduled flights between Vancouver and Victoria. Um, At one point, I had about, I think, 16 or 1700 hours, and I wanted to go fly a beaver. I just... First of all, it's a beaver, so who doesn't want to fly it?
1: That's my goal.
0: Yeah, and I wanted to go do something by myself on my own. I felt super prepared and ready for this. So I was able, from a captain I had flown with, he knew somebody who knew somebody who owned a fishing lodge and owned an airplane. He put in a recommend for me. They hired me over the phone. And boom, I had a job flying a beaver for the summer at a fishing lodge. And that was amazing <laughs> to, <laughs> to put all those skills that I had learned to use. And then obviously like way more new ones that I learned. Right. Um, that was a super fun summer. And then I was able to come back actually to Kimborkia. I had just taken like an unpaid leave. Right. Uh, I came back and they sent me up north. I had maybe 2,100 hours now at this point. They sent me up north and said, all right, you're going to Inuvik. You're going to be a captain on the Beach 99 on the Twin Otter. And I was like, woohoo. <laughs> yeah.
1: So had most of your time been on floats at that point then?
0: Most of my time, yeah. I think I had maybe oh, 400 hours of, 300 hours of Twin Otter wheels. Yeah. And I, yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, Ken Boric is the, the iconic planes of the North, right? The red with the black sort of lightning yeah. bolt on them. Growing up, you think, oh, I want to be a pilot for Ken Boric." So, oh,
0: yeah. There's yeah. something very romantic about it. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs>
1: yeah. And then did you have aspirations to be an airline pilot? Or did you always know you are going to kind of fly other well, things? Well,
0: to be honest, uh, I just had aspirations of getting whichever first job I could get. Right. It, it At that point, I, I didn't have a very big goal in mind other than to get in an airplane and it didn't matter which one to me. Now, had it been, um, I don't know, like a Beach 1900 with Central Mountain Air, then I probably would have ended up kind of on that route, of airline route. But I knew too that I liked things a little bit off the beaten path, just who I am. So I really did focus my efforts on these more typically Bush pilot style, operations. And I never really had a big desire to go for an airline. Yeah.
1: Well, the jobs you've had seem to be uh, a lot of remote locations, pretty high adventure stuff. Um, You did some flying for the UN too, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, after I flew up in the Arctic, I went and moved to the Maldives. um, And I flew there for four years flying (laughs) floats. Uh, I had a a child, well one of the two, but I had him overseas, uh, actually had even had the Maldivian government to change their regulations so that a woman could fly pregnant. So I had to do a big presentation to their civil aviation department and their lawyers and their doctors. It was the first time I ever spoke in front of a group of people and I was super nervous. But a um, couple months later they changed the rules. Nice. So that was great because I just got married so I got pregnant, was able to fly, make some money, have some fun, uh, then I took some time off and we moved back to Canada and I was had a second baby I was offered a job with an airline. Uh-huh. I went through the process with, uh, I would have been Japs, um, but I, I turned it down. So we moved up north to Yellowknife and we partnered up um, in a small airline up there and so I was up there for a while, flying a little bit, doing some business stuff and just kind of taking care of kids. And it was fantastic. And then after that, when we moved back to Vancouver, I went back to the Maldives. I flew a little bit more. <laughs> and then comes the UN and the Red Cross. <laughs> so I, was, uh, I had applied at Voyager Airways. And they uh, interviewed me. And then offered me a job as captain on the Dash 7. I just about died. <laughs> I mean, it, it's a Dash 7. First of all, another de Havilland. Yeah. And
1: You're ticking off all the numbers. i am taken
0: them. I'm trying to. <laughs> yeah. I'm still, I still have a few more to do. But uh, the Dash 7, it's got four engines. I mean, that thing's amazing. You can fly this airliner-style pressurized aircraft with 40-some-odd passengers into a little bush strip. I mean... It was it was perfect yeah. so I I left to go to Africa for my first time ever and ended up in Uganda and South Sudan oh. flying captain on a Dash -7 for the United Nations <laughs> I've never carried so many guns <laughs> um, before in my life it was a bit a bit interesting it was it was such a cool experience
1: I bet that was um, was Sudan at the time pretty dangerous was that area
0: they had just um become their own country south sudan so they were still in, still in the newness of this um you know big big peace project and um but you know it, it didn't take long for it to get <laughs> a little bit um dangerous in areas or you know different things happening in that area yeah. um but yeah was, I
1: mean, it, was there any interesting uh, procedures or Just things you had to think about flying in that area?
0: Well, one time we've, yes. So, you know, you're checking in every 30 minutes. Otherwise, they're looking for you. Um, Most of the places don't have uh, any kind of approaches at all. But often, so we would get our weather from a UN weather observer who were trained. And so they would (laughs) start to read off. Um, They would tell you, oh, the weather is 5,000 feet and so on and so many miles of visibility but actually it was 500 feet. Oh. So they <laughs> often would make mistakes and you really didn't have a reliable source of anything other than yourself and your plan B and your plan C mm-hmm. and seriously sometimes a plan D. Like you just everything was fluid and you were always thinking steps ahead and what ifs all the time.
1: Yeah. Well, it's good training.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, any crazy adventures there, what are some stories you can tell? Uh, (laughs) Are you allowed to tell any stories?
0: (laughs) Yeah, maybe some stories. Um, I flew the president of South Sudan once, and we, he got out, and there's like a ton of people, you know, and everyone's saluting, and next thing you know, I look out the the left window under the left wing, and there's two cows, and they're getting their throats, they're just getting slaughtered right there, they're sacrificing two cows, and they're all hooting and hollering and um, gunfire is going off. And, um, it, you know, it, I just, I, th- I thought, where, where am I? Like, what's happening here? And I just had to sit there and just, like, watch it, you know? Yeah. It was kind of strange. And then they did that, and then they moved along. And then I took off. <laughs> uh, I've had to overshoot because of uh, people, bicycles, cows, I've asked helicopters if they could sweep the runway for me, so on their takeoff they would sweep all the cows off the runway, and then I would be ready and like I would go right after them. Um, Yeah, things like that. Um, And then there's just danger factors of like an area that is supposed to be deemed safe and it's been like considered that it's a green light, you're good to go, but then when you're in the air, uh, maybe something's happening, so then they turn you around or... Anyways, those are things you have to think about when you're flying in countries like that.
1: A little different than Canada.
0: <laughs> yeah, a little bit different, yeah. yeah. I I also was able to fly the Twin Otter there for a Swiss company. Uh, and we flew for the Red Cross. And that was actually quite different from flying with the UN. Because we went into a lot smaller, more remote strips. Um, and what we carried was different because it was a different... Um, well, different organizations, so they do things quite differently. The UN was extremely neutral, so we would have hospitals in both rebel-held territory and uh, government-military-held mili- territory, uh, as well as, like, so one day you'd be taking, like, wounded rebel soldiers, and other days you'd be taking wounded military soldiers. Um, we were, yeah, we we were we did a lot of really, really different things. The great thing about that was that we were known as being extremely neutral, so... Often, we, well, we would not be so much of a target, but that's not necessarily true.
1: Hi. Hi. And then, uh, so after that, well, let's jump ahead a little bit because I, when I first met you, you were flying a red surveillance plane around Vancouver, and I think everybody sees that thing go. what are you yeah, actually doing up there? the big
0: red bird, the eye in the sky. So the big red bird is um, the National Aerial a surveillance program aircraft. So what they're looking for is, uh, they're, they're doing marine pollution patrol. There are some side looking airborne radars that we can uh, use uh, while we're flying out over the water to find anomalies on the water, such as oil from a ship, oil from a dead whale, Um, There's a lot of things. We even found a buoy once, like just even though it didn't have oil, but there was some, it was uh, causing some anomaly on the water. So very sensitive. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if we had bad weather, we could be up at 24,000 feet still doing our job. Yeah. Um, So the reason that we'll fly over Squamish is because there's a port here and there's also the marina. Um, We've also done some interior lake work uh, as well as we did a bit of work for the fires a few years ago and also the floods uh, in Grand Forks area. Okay, yeah, yeah uh, we also did some work up in the north um, for the Yukon and the Northwest Territories government, uh, checking on bridges and um, culverts that go under the road. Yeah. Um, things like that. Hmm. So very, uh, we search and rescue as well, or more like, sorry, not rescue, because we, we can't really rescue, but search and assist. Hmm. Uh, with the video the infrared camera uh, actually it was the our sister the sister airplane in Moncton that was um, uh, working in coordination with the police officers when they found that man that had d- d- done some shooting uh, they found him in the dark uh-huh. with between the airplane and the police officers with the night vision yeah. Um, so yeah very, so it's the, the eye
1: in the sky basically it's,
0: the, it's a little bit of the eye in the sky but you know, everyone thinks uh, that it's out there, like watching you, and really, it's it's just doing. It's it's um, majority of its work is pollution patrol. So, yeah.
1: So you did that for a few years.
0: I did that for a few years, and uh, although I really enjoyed it, I definitely felt a calling to go back to a little bit of this rotational overseas lifestyle versus the Monday to Friday drive to the airport every day and drive home through traffic. Mm-hmm. So a little bit more of my style. And I contacted my old company, the Swiss company, to see. uh, I heard that they were flying uh, float planes in Saudi Arabia. So I thought, oh, perfect. Let's see if I can do that. And uh, after some, uh, not not really negotiating, but basically after some uh, of the customer checking in, uh, to me and my experience and uh, interviews, and do I know what I'm getting myself into, and um, getting the, the yes from the customer, then I was uh, the first female pilot for, um, for what we're doing in our operation in Saudi Arabia. And then shortly after, became the first female flying instru- instructor, captain for training captain for uh, ZMEX in their 50-year history. So that's pretty exciting, I'm pretty proud of that.
1: So you get to fly, float planes in another warm environment. <laughs> yeah, it's really, yeah,
0: it's really hot though, it's almost too warm. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a bit different than the Maldives. Um, but it's quite enjoyable and it's definitely nice, and it's an amphib. So uh, we're able to land in the water and then go fuel up in an airport, and um, that's, it's, that's new for me. So I'm super, it's, it's exciting to be able to go anywhere, fly IFR. Uh, Take off on the water, fly IFR, land on the water. Yeah, it's quite amazing. Yeah.
1: Um, So we're sitting here at Glacier Air. Last weekend, we had the Fly It Forward event where um, women and girls got to um, take their first flights. And it was really cool. Over 100 people got to go flying. Um, But what's it like as a woman in Saudi Arabia, as a pilot there?
0: Uh, I think most people don't know I'm a pilot because I'm always wearing this dress that covers up uh, basically everything. Right. Um, the, when the passengers get on the plane, uh, sometimes they look a little like surprised, uh, but I haven't really, I haven't had any negative experiences, uh, even with any of the um, you know, Saudi people, for sure.
1: Are you, do you think people are... Well, I guess if they don't know your pilot, it's hard. But do you think people are getting inspired? Like uh, a woman there might see you and be like, oh, maybe I should be a pilot.
0: Yes. And, you know, I was quite actually um, inspired to find some female pilots. Uh, And I did manage through the 99s to look up their Middle East chapter. And I found um, Yasmin, who is Saudi Arabia's first female commercial pilot. She's flying an ATR 72 for a small airline there. And I've met up with her a couple of times now and I've heard her story. And I mean, it's amazing like the tenacity and um, to be able to push through what she has and at 29, get her finally get her first job. Yeah. Yeah, So, uh, like I said, a lot of people don't really know what I do. Um, But I think that, you know, anytime somebody sees a female pilot it can be quite inspiring especially to a young girl who just like me in high school had no idea I could do that like wouldn't have ever thought about being a pilot
1: that seems to be the big stumbling block um to people becoming pilots or any job in aviation is just that first introduction to it
0: yeah yeah and I think that you know uh society we have this sort of it's conditioned right like girls like pink and boys like blue and girls play with dolls and boys play with cars and um and, and i mean that's just a, it's a sort of natural inherent it's it's what we do as humans um we sort of fall into these kind of roles and so people just don't know that actually you can just do whatever you want yeah. and you know if a man does it a female can do it and, and vice versa as well so yeah. you know you look at a typical job like Nursing is mostly typically uh, female dominant, but you'll see male nurses. so it's it's wonderful. It's nice to be able to open the eyes of um, young boys and girls and let them know that really they can do uh, any any job that they're interested in as long as they have an interest and a passion for it. And yeah,
1: and this is now, I think you said it's almost thirty years since you took your first first flight I know you're dating me you're aging me
0: (laughs) something like that yeah
1: um and you've had kind of this very interesting career not following maybe a traditional aviation career although I'm sure there's lots of people who do the same sort of work yeah um what would you say to somebody who is getting into it now and I think a lot of people are focused on airlines like I'm gonna get that airline job but there's a ton of things to go do out there
0: Well, so one lesson that I learned as soon as I walked out of flying school was that there is so much more flying than airlines. I had no idea. So that's one thing that I always like to share with um, people who are young pilots who are in flying school or thinking about flying. Um, I want to share with them all the different kind of flying that there is available out there and that it's not just airline. Um, There there are so many interesting things uh, and places to go there's scientific work. Um, I mean, even cargo is interesting to some extent. Um, passengers, uh, medevacs, uh, humanitarian, um, survey, fi- I mean, it just the list goes on. And once I realized that, uh, it, it was so great because I wanted to do all of those things. Right. It was like, wow, I. I I wanna go and fly in every area and I wanna try and have a taste of a little bit of everything. Yeah. And so I'm still kind of doing that. It's
1: maybe it's good for the millennials these days who don't have the attention span. Like,
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you can go exactly. fly all sorts of different
1: things. Yeah, no, yeah. it's
0: perfect. I mean that was one of the reasons I really loved my very first job of Camboric Air and I stayed there for so long was because they had so many different contracts. There were so many things I can go and do with that one company. And um I was always extremely proactive. And I would tell my chief pilot, okay, so when an opening comes up here, I'm interested in this, and basically, like everything I've ever really kind of went for, um, and put like my effort towards, uh, I got by being positive and maybe a little pushy, <laughs> but I didn't have anything to lose, and I certainly didn't get everything I've wanted, but I mean, everything that um, I have got, I've worked really hard for.
1: So I guess um, would that be? one of your words of advice for new pilots is, um, I guess it's network and be super positive, work hard. Yeah. Kind of, kind of the
0: yeah. things uh, you should
1: do for any job, but.
0: Well, it is. Uh, and I think with, uh, flying in particular, uh, it can get a little, uh, I've heard from new pilots. It's a bit of a downer or a bummer when they don't get this job they had really, you know, thought they were going to get. And, um, I just try to keep encouraging them that this is just one thing and we don't always get these first jobs and, and something will come, but there's no rhyme or reason to it. So it's just a matter of being patient and positive and just keep working hard and not complaining and just keep focusing on it because something will come. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, we were talking in the last podcast with Ryan and Kevin about how with the, the fast track to the airlines, there's, there's kind of a lo- a loss of the, the skills you learn in the bush and the flying decision-making skills you get. Um, yeah. Is that something that's really, like you've done so much different types of flying that you must have a really good base of?
0: I think I can do a lot of things, just not super well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I know what you mean. Um, I, I always, uh, in my opinion, my opinion is that I feel like we should try to gain a lot of these kind of hands and feet skills um, and what to do when uh, all the electronics goes away. You need to have this default ingrained in you and I mean that's the first time I had to ever use an autopilot and and I I really, it, it felt so foreign to me and I'm trying to have the autopilot fly and I'm trying to manage the power and this instrument approach and some of the glass, uh, you know, glass cockpit style. And at the end of the day, when I started feeling like I was overwhelmed and overworked and I just, my brain went automatically to like private pilot school default. And it was like hands and feet. I disconnected the autopilot and I just flew it raw. And um, I feel like those, those skills are really important. You know, people can definitely be great pilots, um, sort of this ab initio, and go right into a a jet, and they're really good at what they do in that one particular case. And maybe they'll never have to use any other skills, if they're lucky. Um, But I also feel like there's so much fun and so much to see, and so much of the world just explodes in like color and the way. Like it's hard to explain. I never looked at things um, in the way that I look at them years later as a pilot having been to different places
1: there's a girl who got out of one of the planes on the weekend and she's like i never knew there were so many people in squamish there's just (laughs) that like that different perspective on the world that you'd never see unless you fly in a small plane
0: yeah and i i want to see it all like i'm i'm definitely not done yet i'll do i'll do a lot more i don't know what um i don't quite know what yet but My biggest goal is to be happy in life and have that balance. And so, wherever I can, however I can, mesh life and flying and balance. It's not always. Sometimes it tips one side or the other. But that's my goal, anyways, is to always have that. I, I don't want to be super obsessed about any one thing or the other. And and I still, I just want more. I want to see more. It's it's almost like a little obsessive in that sense <laughs> yeah. that like
1: it's probably, <laughs> I want to do a, it all. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a great job for somebody like that though. Cause there it, is, it like, is there's just, the world is there to explore. So. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's been a real adventure. That's for sure.
1: So I'm going to ask a, a slightly selfish question. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm considering career pivot, all that kind of midlife thing. I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to go flight planes. If somebody wanted to get to where you are today, maybe flying floats or flying for Ken Boric, Um, what should their focus be on? Like out of flying school?
0: Uh, I would say um, get all the licenses and ratings. So get your float rating, get your multi, get your IFR. Um, Just be super prepared because there are some companies such as Ken Boric Air, where it's a great place to start your career and you will do everything from VFR to IFR, to flying in what's considered a 705 or a transport-rated aircraft like the DC3, or you might be in a twin otter. So definitely be prepared for anything, and really focus on what you want, and really aim your efforts at those businesses or that style of flying that you want, and just don't don't waver from that, and don't don't let. Um, Negative moments, um, you know, discourage you. Really, right.
1: Cause I'm sure it's not all glamorous. You make no, it sound not, great, but <laughs>
0: no, it's not all glamorous at all. I mean, there's sometimes I just want to go make coffee at Starbucks. To be honest, like I'll be, but but then you know, there's it's uh, it's all I really know how to do, and I love it. And I think if I really wanted to do something else, knowing who I am, if I really just wanted to go make coffee at Starbucks, I would. Right. But I keep doing this because I love doing this. Yes. So. Yeah.
1: Cool. And then, um, if you had an hour in the plane with somebody and you wanted to teach a lesson or one pass along some nugget of wisdom, what would it be?
0: Okay. Well, I think the biggest thing would be the first hour on the ground before getting into the airplane. So, the more preparation you can do for your flight, um, the safer uh, your flight will be. More the more enjoyable, the less stressful. Uh, I mean, preparation is key. So I would say first of all, spend a lot of time doing good preparation. Ask as many questions to as many people, and use all of the different resources available to you. Whether they're highway webcams, I mean, uh, Transport Canada, we're looking up the highway webcams. Like we need to see, just like everybody should be. Yeah. So and then in the air, I would say if I was to pass a lesson along in the air, um, uh, definitely always look ahead and plan, like have more than just your initial plan. Have a plan B and sometimes also a plan C. And, And for every stage along the way, those things change. But it's really, really important because you'll feel it inside you when things aren't feeling right. And if you don't have a plan B or a plan C, things can go bad in a hurry. And so if you know before you get into something, this is my next move. You know, if A happens, I'll do B. If B happens, I'll do C. And you keep, keep doing that. It'll keep you safe and happy flying for a really long time.
1: Do you have any good stories of uh, getting into plan C and <laughs> worrying about things?
0: <laughs> I have. I mean, you know, so I was thinking about that the other day. Some, some things you just get yourself into, and it's a very uh, important lesson learned you've learned from your own mistake. And then sometimes you get yourself into a situation just by chance, like uh, you might have a maintenance failure. Um, something like that happens. And there was a time when I was in the Maldives and I, I, just, I wasn't even in the air when this happened. So I think I had already had one mishap that day. I'll tell this story. I was a week away from not flying anymore because I was that pregnant. I had already put a hole in the float, um, a very just skinny little slice uh, from some coral. So I had switched into my second airplane and I was taking that second airplane out to go do a flight. And there's you know 15 or 20 other airplanes parked around me. And I'm trying to, you know, with the wind, I'm trying to go wherever I'm going. And the more reverse I'm pulling on the right side, the more forward the right side engine is pulling me. So I'm actually churning left now, churning into a bunch of parked airplanes. And I didn't have, t- I didn't know what it was. All I knew was this engine is going forward and I want it to go in reverse. The more I pull reverse, the more it goes forward and there's nothing in the emergency procedures for something like that. You can't be trained for everything. So all I did was just reach up and turn off the fuel on that one engine. And it stopped, which was great. But now I've got one engine going and I still have airplanes all around me and people are looking at like, what's going on, you know? So I don't know, it was just, and there's a lot of luck involved in a lot of stories in aviation. And luck is, I believe in luck. We (laughs) very much believe in luck. You either have really good luck or really bad luck and there's nothing you can do about it. In this case, I had really good luck. There was a ramp that we used to put the beaching gear on and take the float planes up and there was no airplane parked in sort of front of it. And the way the wind was blowing that day and the engine that I had had to turn off, I turned toward, like, towards that ramp and I just kind of timed it right, turned off the other engine and we slowly just, and I missed, I missed my wings on one tail and one nose of the aircraft that were parked there by about, I don't know, to me it felt like three inches, but it was probably by about a foot or two on either side. <laughs>
1: Like you, like you meant to do it.
0: I got out of the plane, and they were like, Oh, you know, oh no, what happened? And the engineers came and they did their thing, and I went and got a, an iced tea or something. And then they said, Hey, we got another trip for you in this airplane. And I said, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going home. I'm done. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that, that was that. And that wasn't something that I, you know, I, that was just something I had to deal with because by perchance, you know. Yeah. And then there's been other times where I've, you know, mostly, I would say it's been weather related. I think that we inherently want to take people from A to B, because that's what we're getting paid to do. And it's very difficult to say no. And we keep looking for ways to, to get the job done, because we feel successful. And that's what we need to do. And operators need to keep operating. And um, yeah, I mean, there's just been times where I've gotten myself into a situation, and then I've landed and I've realized, like, I need to, I, I'm not going anywhere now. I'm staying here.
1: I think that's what new pilots don't realize too, is how quickly weather changes, yeah. especially on the coast here. Like I've, I've, yeah. I've come into Squamish a couple times going like, oh man, it's getting like, it's coming that's, in fast. Yeah. And then you're on the ground and two minutes later, it's pouring rain over top or snowing or whatever.
0: Yeah. It, it happens really fast. And I feel like uh, if you're not sure, or when you start to get that feeling inside your tummy, you need to really listen to it. And, um, and it's okay to go somewhere else and it's okay to have a plane load of passengers and end up somewhere else. Cause I've been there 12 passengers missed their international connection because I wouldn't go back because it was getting too dark and I didn't want to land in the dark in the sea. So it sucked (laughs) and it was, it was a hard thing to do. And I knew that I was going to have to answer some questions, but I was also, I had to be confident and stand behind my decision and, um, those are just really, it's really important to make a decision and then uh, stick with it and feel okay about it, you know.
1: Are most companies pretty good about supporting those decisions too?
0: Yeah, yeah. Most companies, they they want you to be safe and um, uh, they, you know, it, it's your job to look for alternate ways and to try things. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, it is your call as a captain of an aircraft to um, choose you know, the safest option and you have to do that. Yeah.
1: Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks. That You're welcome. Awesome. Thanks it's for another, having me. Another pilot journey. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> it's always so inspiring to hear people's journeys, especially in non-traditional aviation careers.
0: Yeah. Well, I hope I can inspire lots of people and, um, even inspiring myself sometimes still. So <laughs> there's so many things I still want to do. Yeah.
1: yeah. What, what, what's your, what's your, uh, pie in the sky and go what would you want to
0: i would love to fly a helicopter i mean i don't know maybe i would just do it just to say i've done it because i tend to do those kinds of things i don't know if i would want to do it as a job especially now at my age but um i just think it would be cool to get a private helicopter license so maybe that'll be in my my future vision we'll see nice yeah
1: Thanks to Angie for spending the time with us for this podcast. I hope it has inspired you to chase your aviation adventures, or just fire up the COVID escape pod and go flying this week. With all this newfound downtime, I'm going to try and get you as much content as possible over the next few weeks. In a few days, I'll be releasing a video from the Fly It Forward event. So be sure to check out Flying BC on YouTube. I've also got a great recording coming up with James Marassa, where he's going to tell a pretty harrowing story that will give you chills. If you're looking for more podcasts to listen to, I highly suggest Ryan's Cardinal Aviation Audio Briefings, Angle of Attacks Aviator Cast, and Learn the Finer Points with Jason Miller. They're all great shows to keep your head in the game and out of the news. On YouTube, check out Flight Chops. I think the episodes from Alaska I shot with him are coming out soon too, so I'm excited about that. And as always, please subscribe to Flying BC, follow me on Instagram, at Flying British Columbia, and I'd love it if you could share this with your aviation friends. From the west coast of Canada, I wish everyone good health and I hope we all get through these crazy times soon. Flying BC is a project of Formula Photographic.